Hi, this is Eileen Ravella. I'm the immediate past president of the Washington Academy of Physician Assistants. And this is Joshua Lumsden, president-elect of the Washington Academy of Physician Assistants. This is PA Playbook. It's a new monthly podcast hosted by PAs where we discuss smart strategies for being a physician assistant. We talk about laws affecting PA practice, strategies for navigating healthcare, and issues that affect the wonderful work you do on a daily basis. Today, we are discussing changes in healthcare in the 2020s, the rise of corporate medicine, the history of uh, hospitals in the United States, and what this could mean for our future as physician assistants. Later, we have a special guest, Kaylin Haggard, PAC, for, uh, Northwest Business Development Director for Docs Who Care. He's going to be on. He may interject, but I'll introduce him later. As part of our podcast today, we're going to begin a segment where we discuss a common work-related conundrum a PA might experience posted on social media, and we'll give you our thoughts as to what the person might do with it. Today's question is taken from a Reddit physician assistant. Josh, go ahead and read that one. So this comes from Reddit. Um, basically, the person wrote in and he said, or she said, I'm not sure, hi, I'm a new grad working in general surgery inpatient and rotating through pre-op testing outpatient. I am new to the role of surgical PA as this is my first position. I just wrapped up my third week. I've already been given full responsibility for pre-charting, seeing patients, and coming up with risk classification. Honestly, I don't feel confident or comfortable with the expectations so early in the role. I also get the impression that my coworkers aren't patient with me. Any advice on how to navigate the impatience and rise to being competent in my role? Should I consider seeking out a new job that is more supportive of new graduates? I don't expect handholding, but I think more supervision is warranted. Eileen, give me your take on this. What would you say to this person if they're coming to you? Well, I, I think the most crucial part of this question is what happened at the interview when you accepted the job? Were expectations outlined to you? Do you have a contract? And and can was it spelled out to you that there's a mentorship that you could rely on, someone during your shift that you could ask questions to? So those are the sort of the guardrails that are important for a new graduate to have. And if you haven't had those conversations and you're feeling like you're sort of drowning, then I think it's really important to find the person that you can rely on and discuss your concerns that you want to do a good job for these folks, but you need a little bit more guidance. Well, Josh, I, I, what do you I think? think? I think that makes sense. You know, the, the the thing that I I sort of think of, you know, putting my place as that new graduate, you know, about eight years ago and, and remembering, you know, there's just, especially in the very, very beginning, there is so much coming at you. You know, I, in my own setting, I had like four 85 year olds a day on my schedule <laughs> and it was like drinking from the fire hose. And I was fortunately able to seek out coworkers who were able to help, but there's also this huge component of imposter syndrome. You've got all of these people around you, you're getting used to the environment and you kind of feel like you don't belong there. And that is pervasive, perhaps universal in everyone entering medicine, especially first year grads of physician assistants. So I think thinking about that and putting in that, that in context is a piece of it as well. Kaylin, what do you think? Yeah, I agree 100%. I think uh, number one is going to be patient care. You got to look out for the patient. If you don't feel comfortable doing what they're asking of you, they're not going to fault you for going to them and saying, hey, I need some hand holding, some resources, whatever it takes to get her up, to, him or her up, up to speed to doing this job. You know, I think uh, PA's the training that we get, we get a lot of great training in primary care 
and general specialties, but, uh, you know, surgery, things like that. I just don't think you get the, the quantity or the quality of training that a guy needs to get dumped out day one and expected to meet everything that they're wanting. So, yeah, I agree with you. I would be asking for some guidance, some resources, and some more education. And I think it's it's important that, that you're comfortable saying, I don't know, because you don't, mm-hmm. right? You got to say, it's well, okay. Some, yeah, it's okay to say, I don't know, and I really need some help here, and because I, I want to do a good job. I think if, if you're earnest in that way, your employer is not going to look at you and say, why don't you know that? Because you can't know everything. Yeah, yeah and this is my 15th year, and I still say that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you just don't know, right? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The other thing I was going to add, you know, two things. The first is that supervising new grads is a unique skill set, and not everybody has it. Yeah. So it may be that they're learning as they go, as they mentor you, and you have to sort of speak up and let them know that you need that help. The other piece, you know, when we think of this from an ethical perspective, if you don't know something, you know, it like, say so because that's that is a patient safety issue so and if you're not being heard when you say you need help or if you are not being heard when you say you want the training or some structures set in place it might actually be the time to consider finding a new job it's not going to look bad if you've been working three weeks if you find another job so you know is that environment supportive and if it's not you know and you can't rectify it with good communication you might want to move on yeah and I, I think this. I think the data says that PAs change jobs three times before they find their niche. So it's not unusual to be in a position because you, you're hungry. You got out of school. I'm going to take that job. This is going to be so exciting. And maybe it's not a good fit. And that's okay to find that out. So you know, um, there's lots there. And and I, hopefully um, this person got some good ideas and was able to resolve that issue. And and, and that makes sense. If the audience has a question related to PA practice or day-to-day challenges of your job that you'd like us to explore on PA Playbook, email us at paplaybook at gmail.com. We would be happy to discuss it on air. We're going to keep your name confidential. Please don't identify patients, but we are happy to go over it, and we will continue to mind Reddit and other social media until then. Great. Okay, on to the on to the today's episode, rural health care. Um, let me just start with that I did rural health care for 20 years. I, I'm very familiar with the challenges and the excitement and the opportunities in rural health care. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to practice medicine, but it has a lot of challenges. So to start with, we're going to give you a little bit of a background, the history of hospitals in the United States in the last 80 years and how that pertains to rural health care crisis, which is ongoing in the United States. And then we'll talk to Kaylin and, and have him give us his thoughts and ideas uh, and how he thinks we can proceed well in rural health care. In the early days, the Hilburton Act of 1946 dramatically increased federal funding. After the Depression in World War II, there was a severe shortage of hospital beds in the United States. So the federal government noticed a problem and decided to provide grants and states for construction of community nonprofit hospitals. So what what happened with these grants is that uh, the federal government set up these small hospitals that could be run as nonprofits to accept, for basically address access. And so you saw this huge growth. And if you look at hospitals around the country today, you sort of see that they're kind of old. They're like from the 40s, 50s, 60s, or at least made like three quarters of them. You know, the one that I, you know, I, I was a student at at Medics, it was like you could walk 
like one, like, I don't know, like a hundred meters and you'd go from like the 1930s to the 1940s to the future and then back to the seventies. And it was kind of funny, like looking at the changes in architecture. And part of that comes from just like surges, like ebbs and flows of that Medicare funding and that federal funding. Moving on to the 60s, this was built by, built on by Lyndon Johnson's Medicare and Medicaid expansions. And built into that was no discrimination on race. And they also required hospitals to provide a reasonable volume of free care to those who couldn't pay. And this led to sort of a dramatic upward spiral in costs because all of this money became available. There's still hospital expansion in the 70s. And around 1980, the Reagan administration actually put the brakes on this because it wasn't sustainable. And this has led to a somewhat benign neglect of healthcare infrastructure in the last 50 years. And around the same time, physicians in rural areas were overextended. No one wanted to work there. And physician assistants were brought in in the early 70s to extend the work and increase access to patients in underserved areas. At one point, our title was MedEx, short for Medicine Extender a model where physicians own the majority of the practices and hired PAs or medical extenders to augment their practice to save overhead. There's actually like a point, you know, like I, I've talked to very, very seasoned physician assistants who were, you know, beginning in the 70s and they would be referred. So like if I worked in the 70s, I might be called Medex Lumsden. Um, the name didn't stick. Um, one university, University of Washington has kept this title, but the rest, and there used to be multiple Medexes and that was the name of their program but that is basically no for, no more. Running a practice though, it, you know, because it was traditionally driven by f uh, physicians, um, you know, there's a time in the late 80s where they just got sort of overwhelmed due to the staffing shortages that we messaged. So you saw this rise in the 80s and 90s of nurses and non-clinical providers taking over on the responsibilities of running a hospital. And that medical skill set and that uh, administrative skill set are sort of two separate things and most people don't have both. In rural areas, though, there sometimes weren't enough physicians available to work, and those who uh, those who wanted to work not weren't necessarily inter necessarily interested in leadership. Nurse practitioner programs started, and they actually were really really good about incorporating leadership training into their curriculum. Physician assistant programs, however, did not do that because they kind of wanted to focus on the core fundamentals of medicine. And more recently, larger corporations have taken over healthcare, and in some ways, it's good. Uh, 60 to 65 percent of physicians are working in either corporate hospitals or large corporate healthcare businesses. But in the, as a result, they've lost a lot of autonomy, which has contributed a lot of work stress. In 2019, private equity co companies acquired uh, hospitals and and uh, critical access hospitals, and to that extent, they spent $79 billion acquiring these hospitals. So there was, a, there was money to be made. Lots of money, you know, like a huge amount of money of this. And if you look at like a CEO pay at many, like some of these large health core organizations, it's like, gosh, I could never even imagine spending that amount of money in my lifetime. You know, sometimes it's like 35 million, um, let alone like earning it in a year. Uh, so, you know, I... I don't think I'm going to change my job, but it may go there at some point if I can get one. <laughs> um, it's nice work. But, you know, when these large corporations buy healthcare organizations, the real common practice is to load the organization with debt to finance the purchase. And so, you know, it might be that you're having to pay this off and there's even more pressure for revenue. And what that leads to is cutting salaries and benefits and closing departments and even whole hospitals. You'll see just this pressure to see more patients usually, and it sort of leads or contributes to that physician burnout. Yeah. 
And it was sort of the slash and burn mentality that a lot of corporate takeovers did during that era. And as a result, 195 rural hospitals have closed in the past 18 years. 100 have closed entirely, and the other 95 has converted to outpatient emergency care only. And this is based on data from the University of North Carolina Center of Health, Health Sciences and Services Research. Some states have also declined Medicaid expansion, reducing reimbursement to hospitals. And one study suggests that it's about a third of closures that can be attributed directly to declining the Medicaid expansion. The majority of the hospital closures have actually happened in the Southeast. So we're talking about Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, and these are among the 10 U.S. states that have seen uh, the most hospital closures. These are the 10 U.S. states that have declined Medicaid expansions. In a lot of ways, when you look at like public health indicators like obesity, diabetes, these are the states, or even maternal mortality, these are the states that kind of struggle the most. And and the data has shown that there's a higher mortality rate in rural areas. I think it's it's upward to like 60% because of the chronic illness that can't be seen in, in rural areas because of lack of providers. And, you know, it's, it's, I see these like huge differences. So, you know, I mentioned the last, last visit, I did my family med training in Wenatchee, which is in rural central Washington. And then I'm doing, I'm working in a very affluent area in Seattle and there's huge differences. So, you know, like the amount of like workplace injuries from like repetitive stress were much different there. The amount of like uncontrolled diabetes or even diabetic foot injuries were greater in those areas than what I see in rural sites. So there's in in the clinic that I work at now. So there's huge, just sort of like, like there's just huge sort of class implications and there's huge sort of uh, like just health equity issues and rural hospitals are just really, really struggling because of this. And the biggest issue is a lack of resources, because if I, you know, I worked in a rural hospital, if I had a traumatic injury, farming injury, which was not uncommon, then I've got to get that guy out of there. And so that involves a helicopter. So the access to emergency, advanced emergency level one trauma centers is, you know, not easy to get. You've got people like, especially like in Seattle, you've got people flown in all the way from Alaska and Wyoming because yeah. there's no level one trauma center in there. Um, and, and, and I think that's a good recap of the just the general state and how we got to where we were at. So with the background above, we're going to bring on our guest, Kaylin Haggard, PAC. Kaylin is the Associate Medical Director and Director of Business Development for Docs Who Care Northwest. This is a multi-state agency that provides staffing support for rural critical access hospitals throughout the country, including in Washington State. He was raised in Western Oklahoma and graduated from the University of Oklahoma's Physician Assistant Program in 2006. He has worked in emergency medicine and urgent care and has owned his own urgent care practices. Currently, he's working in critical access hospitals in central Washington state. Kaylin, I guess to start, uh, tell us about what you do on a day-to-day basis as a PA and a PA leader. Yeah, thanks for having me on first off, and uh, it's always good to see a fellow sooner uh, in the same room so that's right <laughs> nobody else would understand if i said boomer so but excuse me i've got a little cold so if i sound raspy i apologize but uh yeah my day-to-day stuff as a pa and a pa leader i'm i still see patients i still work six to seven days a month or six to seven shifts a month or 24-hour shifts all critical access hospitals all serving uh you know patients 12 to 15 patients a day uh, and then, you know, the other side of what I do is working through Docs Who Care and, and helping helping them find quality providers, whether it's PAs, nurse practitioners, or physicians to come in. So I spend a lot of time out 
recruiting, getting to know people and kind of making sure that the people that are coming in are good fits culturally and uh, for the hospital and for docs who care. I spent a lot of time doing that as well as going out and finding hospitals, right? So there's a lot of hospitals. We can get into that here a little bit, but my favorite thing to do that I do daily is that I'm the voice between the PA and the hospital. So a lot of times you've got this disconnect, especially with major corporations. If you want something done, you shoot an email to somebody and then six emails later it gets answered and then you have this chain coming back. So I've kind of been able to take and step into the role where if the emergency room needs something, the provider needs something, they can come to me and say, hey, this is what's going on. And I can sit down with the CEO and go over it or the board or whoever it is and get whatever we need. And that's really what I enjoy doing on a daily basis. So, uh, and then the other thing is I'm just a voice for the PA, you know, thanks to you guys, I've been able to kind of get involved legislatively and uh, really kind of sticking my neck out there. So, but that's me in a nutshell and what I do on a daily basis. And I, and I have to say, Kenley, we really appreciate your support because he was at our spring conference last year and did a great talk on emergency medicine and then testified on behalf of our collaborative bill that we have for the legislature. And so did your boss. So we, we truly appreciate it because this is what it takes to move our, our uh, ball down the field, uh, you know, a lot of help and a lot of support. So I, we really appreciate that. You bet. Glad to do it. And it's, you know, like it, this, when we look at this, and if you look at the PA collaborative practice issue one way, this is just, you know, it just looks like we're like a power grab. We want scope creep. You know, the reason we're doing this is because we care about patients and we care about patients in rural areas. You know, 14% of Americans live in rural areas. 15% of PAs work in rural areas, but about 10% of physicians work in rural areas. So what that means is that physician assistants are doing a wider range of tasks. They're covering more of the work because of that poor access to specialty care. And sometimes they're supervising physicians, not even the same county. So Kaylin, I think pivoting onto this and in light of the history that we talked about, how does the rural staffing crisis and closure and corporatization of hospitals relate to PAs and what you do? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Josh, is that it's loss of resources. That's been the biggest impact that I've seen. So <clears throat> anytime that you take these general surgeons or GI guys that were coming out and seeing, you know, patients one day a week or whatever, and they join a, a practice that's, whether it's in Wenatchee or Tri-Cities for Washington anyway, or Spokane, and they, they just quit coming out to these small hospitals. So you wind up managing these patients that typically you wouldn't have had to back in the day, right? So now you're taking care of a, a great example of that in the ER and, and we do hospitalist as well as you have a patient that comes in that needs an ERCP. Well, there's only five places in the state of Washington that do ERCPs. So you get these people that are sitting in there. I had the mayor of a town for seven days in a critical access hospital waiting on an ERCP, right? Same thing, GI bleeds in STEMIs. They're wanting us to manage these out there in these critical access hospitals. So I would say that's probably the biggest one. Uh, the last, there, there's two, two other things to talk about there is that it had, the, the corporatization of healthcare has taken away the voice of the PA, kind of like what I was just saying a while ago, right? If you want something changed or um, whether it's you're not getting enough supervision, like our question that we had earlier or whatever that problem is, it's just so difficult to get an answer and to get these things fixed whenever you've got layers of executives ahead of you trying to fix these things. And then the last one is pay, right? So anytime that you've got a corporation 
whether especially if it's a public traded company, right? Their their service is to their shareholders, right? They have to drop something to the bottom line. If it's a not for profit, obviously, uh, it's more of the C suite that's kind of getting served there. So and it's really put a cap on our, our growth, you know, that while well, they want to expand our uh, scope of practice, that we really haven't seen a huge growth in pay. I don't think those things have really gone up uh, at, at the same level. So those are the things that I see anyway as, as the biggest issues with the closures and kind of the privatization of healthcare. Just a just a quick follow up question, Kalen. You know, if yeah. uh, if I'm out in Eastern Washington, what day should I have appendicitis and can yeah, Not Saturday. Not Saturday. Not okay. Sunday. Okay. Yeah. And not Friday after four. So okay. any that, 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 well, that that holds true in Seattle as well. Um, <laughs> Eileen, yeah. you know, just giving your perspective on things, because you've practiced in rural Oklahoma, you're in the Puget Sound area. Yeah. How has this impacted your time as a PA since the 1980s? What have you seen? Well, um, you know, I, I, I uh, spent 20 years in a rural family medicine in a town of 2000, and the closest town was uh, 20 miles away. Um, and that was Ponca City. I'm sure Kalen knows where that is. Mm-hmm. And, and that was where the l- larger hospital was. So I was the, I was the dock in town. Um, and I was it. And so anything could come in the door and everyone expected me to, you know, take care of them, which, which I think I did pretty well, but because of the lack of resources then I assumed the role of county medical examiner. So I went out to unattended deaths. Um, I became the mayor of a small town. Um, I became the assistant hospital administrator. So when you're in a small town, you are wearing a lot of hats because it's required and you've got to be able to step into it. Maybe not knowing what you're doing, but you figure it out. Um, and, and that's a lack of resources in this town. Now, if you're if you're lucky to be in a town where there is a surgeon or a nurse anesthetist, you're never going to have an anesthesiologist, and you have a surgical case, well, you might be lucky enough to get that done and get taken care of. But many times we had to send people out to a larger facility because we just did not have the resources. There was no CT, you know, we had X-ray, we had ultrasound, but that drives a lot of what you're able to do. And I know Kalen can talk to that. Yeah, I don't think things have changed much from uh, in the 80s. So if if nothing else, you know, it's obviously gotten worse. We're, like I said earlier, you're having to take care of patients that you typically wouldn't have to. You're trying to figure out how to get patients set up for whether it's studies, you know, echoes or treadmill tests, things like that downstream. And all this has an impact on the patient care, right? Yeah. These things that if you were in Seattle or uh, Spokane or whatever would be done during their inpatient stay and they have to be set up as an, you know, down the road, they're all going to have an impact. So, right. yeah, you got to put on many hats if you're working in critical care. And, and transportation it was a huge issue where, when I was in, you know, because if, if you have an ambulance service, that's one thing, but some communities don't have that. Um, so the patients are having to drive places or send it by fixed wing or, you know, you're, you're mm-hmm. calling out the troops to get the folks where they need to go. And they can be, pretty it could be a real nail biter when you've got a critical patient you've got to get them out of there and you may not be able to in time and that's that's a tough one yeah that that certainly hasn't helped or or hasn't changed because we're still even though you may find a bed for a patient which we've been in a critical bed shortage for three years now it may be eight hours before an ambulance gets there you know and a lot of these hospitals 
yeah, they may have a critical or a uh, an ambulance service, but rarely are there ever a paramedic involved. Well, there's never. I mean, wh- when I was mayor, we could not. I, we didn't have the money to hire a paramedic, right? We had yeah. EMTs. So, yep. you know, if, to, for us to get a defibrillator, just an automatic defibrillator, was a coup because you just didn't have the money. There wasn't True. enough. You know, economically, these small towns just don't have it. So. Yep. The, the good thing about rural medicine, or at least practicing as a rural medicine PA, is that you get to do a lot more. You know, oh, So yeah. if you like that manual stuff, I learned so much when I was out there, just hands-on procedures. I did things there that I rarely ever get to do. And I still do some of those, even though my colleagues don't, my internal medicine clinic here, like a lot of procedures that other people don't do it. So that experience was so valuable. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to say, you know, I, I it, people like you, Kaylin, people like Eileen, they do leadership and it's not because they're power hungry. It's not because they're trying to run the world. It's because they see the need for the work and just that I'm guessing it's that sort of moral calling to sort of respond to these needs and take care of them. Am I reading that right? Uh, yeah, I can I can speak to that uh, wholeheartedly here. So uh, Eileen and I actually worked together in Oklahoma in like 09 or 08, somewhere in that ballpark, 2010. And we worked for a for-profit entity. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming home to my wife and uh, turned on the television and my medical direct, regional medical director was on 60 Minutes, which is never good, by the way, <laughs> for a for-profit hospital. So, uh, and I'm not going to go into the details because I don't want if somebody hears this. Uh, but anyway, long story short, they were, they were asking uh, the ER staff to do things as far as admissions that they shouldn't be doing. Right. And that kind of put that little thing in the back of my head thinking, man, I've got to do something to, to help change what's going on. So that's really what kind of led me down that path. I kind of went from there. I went to critical access to, to critical access hospitals in Oklahoma. And then that those were bought out by corporations. And then that I felt like, well, I need to go do something on my own. So we went and I went and opened up Forge and Cares in Oklahoma and helped run those. And I thought, I guess if you can't beat them, join them, I guess was kind of my uh, my mentality then. And then in 2019, I kind of felt that, you know, I need to go do something else as far as serving others. So we sold that and then I moved to the Northwest. That's where I brought Docs Who Care up to the Pacific Northwest. What made you come to, to this part of the country? Uh, in-laws. Ah, that'll do it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's great up here. I wanted to move the mountains and. Yeah. And, and, and when you fly back to Oklahoma, as I've done periodically and I, and I'm in the plane, I go, wait, 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 everything, where's all the trees? Everything's so flat. Yes. <laughs> what happened? Never had one day where I wished I was back. Still uh, love the place, but not the weather. No, no. Do you guys see much in the way of differences between your time in Oklahoma and your time in Washington State in terms of the way that healthcare works or that the rural medicine works? Go ahead, Caitlin. Uh, you know, as far as patients go, not really. And, and from, from my standpoint and where I'm working, I'm working, you know, farm country. So a lot of the people that I'm seeing, and honestly, the people that I grew up with, I grew up in a town of uh, 350, 400 people, farming community, you know. So things haven't really changed or, or up here, comparing up here to Oklahoma, I don't feel the patients are much different. There are things that uh, are better in Oklahoma than there are in Washington. For example, getting patients transferred. I feel like 
it was a lot easier and there's a lot more access and probably because you've got more hospitals than you do people with the state versus, and it's not exactly a rapidly growing state like Washington, <laughs> but uh, those are probably the biggest differences is just being able to transfer patients and get them, get, get them to the place that they need to be. What about supervision? Kaylin, how is that impacting you? <clears throat> well, it's, I mean, being a critical access staffing company, right? That's what we do. We go out and we find critical access hospitals who are looking to make a change for their, whether it's full-time, you know, their doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners they've got, they don't, or either they're not happy with the service they're providing or they're getting complaints or they're too expensive. Those are usually the three things. So whenever we come out here and, and we do this and, and we start bringing on PAs, uh, we're experiencing it right now. So one of the biggest laws that we have is in, in Washington, they did expand it up to where you could have 10 per doctor. Um, but we've already maxed that out, right? You start you know, serving three to 4,000 hours a month. Uh, it's impossible to, to not run out. And you start running out of doctors who are willing to supervise as much. And I don't blame them, right? You're like, well, what do I want to stick my neck out there for? Yeah. So even though we're out practicing autonomously, I, my supervising physician is a phone call away, but rarely am I ever calling him because if I'm going to call somebody, it's going to be to the specialist or somebody, whoever I need that, that tertiary facility. So that has had a huge impact on, on what we do out here and our ability to bring on more PAs uh, versus nurse practitioners or physicians. So, so with your with your model, the the supervising physician is in the same town in a different town, and I, I know the laws allow him to be another place. And and by the way, you can solicit the medical commission to to uh, supervise more than ten. But just so you know that. Um, yeah, right. Anyway, so how are how what is that proximity like, and and is is it ever an issue? No, no, not really. Honestly, it's it's just. Mo I mean, well, is it an issue? The proximity, no, because it's just by telephone, so they can be yeah. they can even be out of the state for that matter, out of the country as long as they're available to answer the phone uh, and 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 uh, solve the problem or answer the question. So that really hasn't uh, had as big an impact. Um, now, it would be the, the one area that it has had a big impact is if that supervising doc or both of them, because you've got an alternate are on vacation somewhere, right? Now they're having to take time away from their vacation, pick it up versus if we had an agreement where you said, okay, anybody in this group, right? It's up to you. You guys write down and say, I've got 10 physicians I can reach out to. Any of them are my supervising doctor. That would make it a lot easier on the physician. And I think it would be a lot easier for them or it would make, them, make it more attractive for them to want to come on and supervise right. uh, PAs. Do you ever contract with ER groups? No. Or is it just, okay, no. that's probably a we're hard all, sell. We're all contract uh, employer. We're all self-employed. Okay, got it. Yep. And then the other question I've got, uh, you know, what is the, what, what other types of incremental or even broad change would you want to PA collaborative practice or PA law that would make things easier for organizations that are doing such important work like Docs Who Care that staff at these hospitals that might close otherwise? So that's a tricky question. I mean, the biggest one by far is the supervision requirements and limiting the number, I would say. And just allowing us to put the you know, put put the onus on us to say you and your doctor or doctors go out put an agreement together you guys are supervising each other but you are responsible for what happens 
to your patient. I'm talking about the PA here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times that physician is gone or in a different different town. They shouldn't be held responsible for what what we do, right? It's our decision to go out there and practice autonomously. So um, that again it would make, make it way more attractive for a physician to want to come on and supervise. Now the whole thought of just you know doing away with supervision is a slippery slope, and you guys know this. So uh, I'm not going to go there as much as I would to say taking the number off and giving us the freedom to contact whatever doctor that we have an agreement with that's written down and allow us to be responsible for the patients that we're taking care of. And in the current bill that we've got before the legislature, it does, it, it the PAs own their liability. And hopefully that will, if, if that passes and it got voted out, out of the committee today, um, so hopefully it'll pass. That should be a huge benefit to you no, guys. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. And then, Kaylin, in the last few minutes, we heard that Docs Who Care is working on so a couple of really, really interesting projects, including some health relief work in Ukraine. Can you tell us about that? And like, how can PAs help? Yeah, I'd love to. So Docs Who Care is, so we're, we're a, a company that was started by Gary Morsh, and he's a physician out of Kansas, who started us in the mid-90s. And really, the main reason that he did it one, it kind of fell into his lap. He had some a hospital, rural hospital that was needing help. And I'm not going to go into that whole thing. But the real reason that he went and did it, because he's an FPOB and was busy seeing 35 patients a day, taking call on the weekends. But he really had a heart to serve. And he really wanted to get out there and serve those that couldn't take care of themselves or go to those places that were underserved. So he thought, well, if I can create a company that can, you know, I can work five days a month, six days a month, and then have, you know, that's going to generate income for me. Then I can go start up this, what we call, it's called Heart to Heart International at that time. So, and the reason they named it that was it was taking medicines from the heart of America. And this is whenever the uh, Soviet Union crashed to the heart of the Soviet Union. And he's got some, this guy's got some amazing stories if you're going to talk to him, but um, so he started that and that has grown into a multi-million dollar nonprofit. That's, uh, I mean, it is ginormous anymore. Um, and then the second one, and this just started up during the COVID crisis is called global care force. So global care force, again, not pro not, not for profit that, uh, rather than just su providing supplies, medications, things like that, they go out and they actually provide providers, PAs, nurses, doctors, whatever. Uh, and they've even taken and they've created these uh, a clinic in a can. So they've got these shipping containers that they put all the supplies in. They want beds, lights, all that, and load them on a truck, drive them out to wherever, opens up, and then you can see these patients. They've really been doing a lot of work over in Ukraine. And their main, you know, you'd think, well, I'm going to a war site or a war zone. I'm going to be taking care of like traumas, things like that. And that's not what they do. It's more providing primary care. Cause you can imagine in a war zone, you know, your primary care office probably isn't open. So you've got these people with these chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, all these you know, routine things, and they're just not getting any follow-up. So they've, uh, they've been able to go over there and serve those people. And they've done an amazing job. And if you ever, if, if you are interested, uh, global care force, um, you can look them up. You can always reach out to me, uh, and I'm happy to put you in touch with uh, Gary or his team, and uh, it's a great way to serve. And if you'd rather stay in the States, they also do some service down on the border 
uh, helping migrants as they come across and providing care to them. Phenomenal service. Phenomenal. I love it. I love it. Well, well, Kaylin, it's been so great to have you on. Really, really appreciate your perspective. I think we could probably do another another podcast on this because there's so much we left unsaid. Mm-hmm. The challenges in rural health care, it's, it's really and, – and it's sad to say that it's gotten worse instead of better since I was there. Uh, I think I left in 2002. Um, and it's just it's, – it's tragic that these folks can't get the care they need. And it's just, um, you know, I'm glad you guys are doing it. I'm, I'm – I'm going to help you out here next month. So I'm excited to do that. So I really appreciate everything you've contributed to this program. So um, thank you so much. You bet. Thank you guys for having me. Kaylin, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, The biggest, well, I've always got final thoughts, (laughs) but I would say, you know, to those that are listening to this, if, if you're out there trying to figure out what, you know, how can I get involved? How can I make a difference or whatever? The biggest one you know, is just do something, right? Nobody else is going to do it for you. I assure you that the other people that are out there trying to argue against any bills that we're getting passed, they are doing something, right? So get out there, call your legislator, reach out to your organization, join your organization, right? That money that goes to WAPA or OAPA or whoever it is that you, your organization is, state organization, that money is what pays for those lobbyists or whatever and gets out that advertising, right? Uh, and the same thing with AAPA. And I'm, not, I'm not going to sit here and act like I've been an AAP member my whole life. Um, but again, if you want things done, then you've got to get out and do it yourself. So that would be the biggest thing. Get off your tail, get out there and do something. Well, it was wonderful to have you as our first guest on PA Playbook. Thank you for joining us today for episode two of the PA Playbook. We're going to come to you next month with another episode. Next time, we're going to address telemedicine, the PA compact, and what this means for you as a PA. And in the meantime, if you have questions about PA podcast, PA practice, you want to know, you want to give us an idea about what kind of show you want to hear, please let us know at paplaybook at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're always willing to hear some good ideas. So thank you so much for joining us today. Mm-hmm.